You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. Today we're going to be talking about restaurant design and what goes into it, what makes for a good restaurant design, and how the pandemic has changed restaurant design and what we can expect for the restaurant of the future. And my guest today is Steve Starr of Star Design. Welcome, Steve. Thanks so much for doing this. You know, I wanted to know a little bit first about your background and what attracted you to restaurant design. Uh, That's a great question, and thank you for having me. I actually fell into restaurant design because it it was basically in my blood. Uh, My family owned restaurants for four generations. And my father was the first um, not to earn a living in the restaurant, but he put himself through college and law school in the working in the restaurants. And my uncle Nat then ran the restaurants and Growing up, um, he and my mom were were very particular about uh, certain things. One of them was that they believed that we had to, my sister and I, had to learn to serve others. And the best way they believed to do that was to literally do that. (laughs) So whether it was working in our family restaurants or working in other restaurants, didn't matter. We had to work in restaurants so that we learned that, you know, to serve others and that um, even though, you know, my dad was a very successful corporate attorney, that we're no better, no different than anybody else. And so it was for them, the, the social equalizer, <laughs> um, having us work in restaurants. And uh, that taught me a great deal about operations and, um, again, how to serve guests and customers. And um, I had the opportunity to work in many different positions. Um, great line cook, great server. I'm a terrible bartender. Um, I like to talk too much and make drinks too slowly. Um, but I also learned that I don't want to be a restaurateur. So I then went to decided to take the other side of the family business, which my mom is now a retired interior designer. So I went ended up going to architecture school and um, had all intentions of um, working on designing housing and affordable housing and um, then uh, moved back to the New York area. And by chance, I ended up just as a fluke, ended up getting my one of my first jobs with a small firm at the time it was called Haverson Rockwell. And um, within a few months of me being hired, I think I was the 18th or 19th person in this small firm. um, We were doing some great high-end 
you know, premier New York restaurants for what you would now call celebrity chefs. And um, within a few months of being hired, uh, we got the opportunity to design the first Planet Hollywood. And um, I was put on that account. And then a few months later, Jay Haverson and David Rockwell split. And uh, by a flip of the coin, I stayed with with David and he formed what was what's now the Rockwell group. And um, so I was there from the very beginning and I was there for a good few years. And again, had the opportunity to work on a combination of some amazing restaurants like the Planet Hollywood and Disney, the Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas and um, Planet Hollywood in London. Um, and then also do some really unique restaurants like Vong for John George, uh, Nobu for, you know, the triumvirate of uh, Drew Neoporin, um, Nobu and Robert De Niro and uh, the Monkey Bar and, and just had th this incredible experience of working on some, you know, once in a lifetime projects. Um, and I realized that this is really, really what I love. And even though I thought I wanted to get out of the restaurant business, I, I just didn't want to be a restaurateur, but really love restaurant design. So, um, that's how I ended up getting involved in it. And from there, I was recruited by a large national uh, design firm uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina to start their restaurant and specialty retail studio and was a, there for 12 years, left as a, a principal and um, then started what is now Star Design in 2007. And um, up until COVID, <laughs> I've had the ride of my life. Um, but luckily, things have really turned around um, for us in the fourth quarter, and we're having a wonderful first quarter. So I, I really think things are turning around for the restaurant industry, if we're any kind of bellwether. So you know, you were talking so much about, you know, your love of design. So what are some of the elements that go into creating a good and an effective restaurant design? You know, I, I love that question, Barbara, because so many people say a good restaurant design or a beautiful restaurant design. And I think you, you asked the, the real key question, a good and effective restaurant design. And what I've found over the years is that there's two key aspects to every restaurant design. One, and, and one isn't more important than the other. Um, they really have to align and go hand in hand. Uh, the first is the, the branding. What messages is the restaurant trying to communicate to its target guest? And 
those messages set the guest's expectation. And the second aspect of of really, really good and effective restaurant design is operational efficiencies. Because the operations then have to deliver on those guest expectations. And if those two things, expectations and what's delivered, aren't perfectly aligned, you get customer dissonance. Um, and, and there's been a lot written, a lot of data, a lot of research done on um, things like when someone walks into a restaurant, whether it's fine dining, QSR, fast casual, you know, casual dining, it doesn't matter. You, you have three seconds, up to three seconds to communicate to a guest what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to go, and what's expected of them. And if those messages aren't clearly communicated to that guest, automatically a a neurological message gets sent to the inner part of your brain that says, whoa, I don't know what to do, therefore I'm uncomfortable, Therefore, I should be careful. And if you're being careful, you're not going to enjoy yourself as much. You're not going to spend as much money. You know, you may go in and you may have the entree and you may have one drink, but you're not, you're probably not going to order the appetizer and the dessert. And you're certainly not going to have that second or third drink. So, Getting those two things, the expectation and then delivering on that expectation aligned in the first three seconds of a guest walking into your restaurant becomes so important. It opens up their mind to the whole experience. And that's really, it it allows your senses to start really enjoying the the sights, the sounds, the smells, the, you know, the, the food theater of maybe an open kitchen, um, just all of those great things that we all love about walking into a wonderful restaurant. But unless your brain is programmed to accept that, it could all be there, but you won't hear it or you won't see it because subconsciously you've put up a barrier and I didn't make this stuff up this is (laughs) it's a there's a wonderful book called neuromarketing and it talks about all of this and and a great deal of research was done on what happens in whether it's a a restaurant or uh, any kind of consumer environment and um, that how you can open up your mind to that environment or your fight or flight mechanism can close you off to experience that environment. So how did the pandemic affect restaurant design, you know, in, in things like real estate needs and, you know, and the overall restaurant experience? Well, um, 
Right now, we're seeing that change dramatically as things start to open up again. And it, it it's there's no one answer to cover the entire country because the country was not, it wasn't handled nationally. It was handled on a state to state and even on a local level in some states. Um, but, but there have been some overarching changes that I think um, will affect the, the overall restaurant experience forever, or at least for a good long while. And one of those is the barrier that used to exist in um, takeout and especially takeout or delivery of um, of more upscale casual or casual dining um, food as opposed to just takeout of, of QSR or even fast casual. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, prior to, to COVID, did, did you think of, of taking out uh, grilled salmon from a restaurant? Nope. I know I didn't. I mean, nope. the only thing I thought <laughs> about was takeout was, you know, fast casual stuff or Chinese food and pizza. And I, I think that was the what the majority of the, the country really experienced. And now that barrier has been broken. And we have, I know my family has taken out about just about anything, you know, everything. Um and last night, I actually ordered I, just that. I ordered grilled salmon and had it delivered. And I think that's going to be a huge paradigm shift as we move out of COVID. Um, because I don't think that barrier will ever come back. Um, or it certainly won't come back for a long time. So where casual dining restaurants or let's just call them full service restaurants, you know, pre COVID did maybe a full service restaurant with good takeout or off premise business did about 10% of their sales from that channel. Now, of course, while things dining rooms are closed or capacities are restricted, they're doing 60, 70, 100% of their sales through off-premise business. What I see moving forward is that they're probably going to be in the 30% of their sales once all the restrictions are um, lifted and everything opens up again. And that's probably going to be on top of the reemergence of dine-in business. So restaurants have the opportunity, full service restaurants have the opportunity to, you know, go to 120, 130% of pre-COVID sales. So those that have made it through this awful time, I think we'll see uh, a rebirth and, and just a, a, a golden age, if you will. Um, so, you know, that's certainly one thing that's hit 
the the full service segment. The other segment that has changed dramatically is fast casual and QSR. And in those segments, the drive-through, walk-up windows, I mean, we have seen such amazing technological advancements in the last 18 months. It's been just phenomenal to be a part of it. And we've seen just restaurateurs come up with so many just brilliant ways to get more people through the drive-through faster. And they've just, you know, you always say uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, there have been tent people have been putting up tents to handle drive-throughs and and more, you know, get the the staff closer to the customer, but still six feet apart. Um, so, you know, under a tent and moving them through instead of just two drive-through lanes, six drive-through lanes, and all of these wonderful, just great ideas that uh, because of the situation people had to come up with. And I think that's leading to some amazing innovations in the the drive-through area. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? What do you see, you know, you see brands be, will be looking for, um, you know, when they look for sites and, you know, as, as trying to retrofit the sites that they already have. Yeah. A number of, of brands are looking through, are looking for drive-through only sites. Um, or they're looking at shrinking their, uh, dining rooms substantially, but almost doubling the size of their drive-through, uh, lanes, if you will. And, um, I saw a wonderful rendering of a new concept that Burger King was looking at, um, that they actually had the, 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 the kitchen on top of the drive-through. So you actually drove underneath the kitchen and that allowed multiple drive-through lanes, you know, easy access to multiple drive-through lanes. Um, so it was almost like a bank, but with the, like a bank teller drive-through system. Um, and I, I thought that was, a, a, again, just a, an ingenious idea. I don't know exactly how it'll work yet, but that's yet to be seen. Um, and then a, a system very similar to, you know, in the old dry cleaners where you had the your shirts or your slacks on a hanger on a rail, motorized rail system. And... You know what I'm talking about, right? The, the, yeah. You know, you can <laughs> oh, picture yeah. that in your mind. Well, I, I saw Chick-fil-A had a system where they clipped a bag of, you know, the, the completed, your completed order, a bag 
um, to a, a rail very similar to the to the um, dry cleaner motorized rail system, and it sent it out across, you know, to uh, a second, a third, a fourth drive-through pickup. And the only thing that was at that drive-through pickup window was a person and where that uh, dry cleaning <laughs> rail came down and a drink machine, beverage machine. So um, th these were just, uh, again, amazing, really, really creative innovations that I think are so exciting for the industry because, you know, that idea might not work, but that's going to spur other people thinking about other things. And all of this stuff, eventually we will come up with a much, a much more efficient, much more convenient, much more um, pleasant drive-through experience that can handle a significant amount of volume. Um, so again, from a real estate standpoint, that's changing the building footprint is getting smaller, but the drive-through lanes are getting larger. So um, you may have uh, you know, a, dry, a, a busy fast casual or a busy QSR might previously be, have looked at a half an acre site or three quarter an acre site and put up a three to 4,000 square foot building. Now they may be looking at three quarters of an acre to an acre and end up putting um, a 2,000 square foot restaurant or a 25,000 square foot building. And the rest is the, these drive-through mechanisms. You know, we also have things like lockers and the return of the automat. So there's a lot of innovation going on. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the really high-end vending machines is, it's just, it's amazing what people are coming up with. So you know, I know a little bit about this just because I can tell from from how you're how you're talking. But you know, what's your outlook for um, the restaurant business moving forward, and you know, and restaurant experience? So I, I'm a little bit of a contrarian here. I really, like I said earlier, I, I think the end of 2021, moving into 2022, we're going to see the beginning of the golden age of full service restaurants. Um, I think that people are so hungry for that social experience and, uh, you know, to, to re-engage socially with one another. And honestly, that's, that's always been at the heart of the restaurant industry from in, throughout history in every civilization, um, in almost every small town or small city, the thing that gets built first, the first you know, public building is the place of worship. And the second public building is the 
place to eat, drink, and socialize. So I, I think that's a human need. Again, no matter what the, no matter where it is in the world. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. So when dining rooms are allowed to reopen, I definitely see people flocking back to those dining rooms and, um, and it's going to be different. There's no question. Um, people are going to be a lot more concerned with sanitation. Um, they're going to be a lot more concerned with the not just actual sanitation, but also the appearance of things being clean and things being um, uh, healthful, uh, if that's a word. Um, and that pre-COVID, the, the kind of grunge weathered look was very popular. Um, I, I see that shifting um, to a little bit more polished, a little bit more finished look so that the, it, the guest gets the, the feeling that everything is cleaned. Everything has been sanitized. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see more. I, I, I thought the trend of, of white spaces was really on the decline just as we were going into COVID. Now, I, I think the lighter, brighter um, spaces using things like, uh, in fancy design terms, it's called biophilia. Um, uh, and it's not a dirty sexual thing. It's, uh, it, it's, it, it's just mimicking nature inside a built environment. So I, I see that really starting to become a lot more prevalent in restaurant design. And, and I, the other thing I see is what, what we've been terming micro social environments. So um, an opportunity where a group can, um, can get together and, uh, you know, a group of whether it's two, four, six, eight, ten people, and they feel like they're um, a little bit protected, um, a little bit separated from the, the rest of the environment but they're really able to socialize and interact with one another. So I, I see these in one large restaurant. I, I see it's broken down into more of these micro social environments. So are there any other, uh, I guess, pandemic trends that you see will be here to stay? Uh, you know, I, I think that one of the issues that, we've seen from the pandemic that has had some really, really um, dramatic and sometimes awful effects on restaurant staffing is that, you know, unfortunately, restaurateurs had to make some very, very difficult decisions to keep their 
their restaurants alive and to keep them going during these really hard times. And they've learned to, they've had to reduce staff. And that, again, has caused them to really become hypersensitive to kitchen efficiencies and um, uh, dining room efficiencies when they're open. And uh, so that we're really mindful of how that affects labor. And I, I think restaurateurs have become a lot more open to a lot more unique solutions than they have been in the past where, um, you know, for the last, you know, five, you know, five years prior to COVID, we've been talking about a, a good bit about labor, labor efficiencies and using new technologies, automated cooking equipment, um, you know, uh, spending money on really, really good POS and KDS technologies, uh, point of sale and kitchen display system technologies that are fully integrated where load sharing and um, is, is handled really, really well through technology. And for five years, Prior to COVID, a, a lot of our clients really weren't receptive to these ideas because it was more money and it, it wasn't a, really a tried and true proven entity, a proven solution. Now, be, again, because of the these circumstances, they've opened themselves up to so many unique solutions um, that I, I think you're going to see restaurateurs at the high end, low end, and everywhere in between embracing technology in a, a much, much more aggressive way. And, you know, my hope is that that technology always is used to empower and foster the staff to guest interaction and isn't used to replace it. Um, I, I think we've seen some concepts that are still are unproven um, and we've seen some that have failed that are all technology and no people and um, or, or very little uh, interpersonal interaction. And, and I don't think those are going to last. Um, but the technologies that are there to uh, foster better hospitality, better the staff's, improve the staff's ability to interact with the guest and create a really unique experience. I think those are the the um, opportunities that and the technologies that we're going to see really flourish um, 
after the pandemic. So, you know, you're just talking a lot about, I guess, the more seamless types of technology that, um, you know, we would do well within the hospitality industry. So I guess putting your thinking cap on, what do you envision the restaurant of the future will look like? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's an enormous question. <laughs> um, and um, I'm going to give a, a little bit of a shameless plug here. So I apologize in advance, but um, we've we've been thinking about this as things slowed down for us during the pandemic, and we've developed uh, a video series. Um, right now, there's the third episode is about to come out in a couple of weeks, um, and it, it, there are a total of six episodes called the restaurants restaurants redefined. And you can get to it via stardesignteam.com at star with two R's. And um, in, in that, through that series, we talk a lot about all of these individual issues. And we also show examples of what that restaurant of the future is going to look like. And in, in this case, Again, like I said, I'm a little bit of a contrarian. I chose to focus on the full service restaurant because so many people have been showing what the these great ideas for drive through and the QSR and fast casual industry and how that's going to change. We chose to do it with the full service restaurants. And one of the keys is that we see is the um, the emergence of a dedicated off-premise to go take out and even third-party delivery station um, and that that whole off-premise experience is th- there might be some visual connection with the dine-in experience, but there's a kind of a perceptual uh, separation between the two. So as restaurants continue with their newfound off-premise business channel, um, that's not impeding or diminishing the experience of the the dine-in guest and unfortunately in the as things start to reopen um, across the country that's one of the things that's one of the things we we have seen is that the dine-in guest has has been sacrificed for this new takeout or off-premise business and what I see going forward is both channels um, looked at equally and whether it be a, a separate uh, to-go door and a separate to-go um, station with cubbies or shelves or, or bins for your takeout order and 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 that that station being staffed 
separately from the um, the dine-in business. Uh, I think that's one of the really big differences we're going to see specifically in the full service uh, sector. So what about the kitchen space itself? How is that going to be redefined? So I think this is where I hope we see some of the most um, advancement, some of the most uh, changes, because again, like I've been talking about, there's this one kitchen is now going to have to serve two channels, dine-in and off-premise, almost equally. And in some cases, it may be 50-50. It's probably going to be in the, you know, 65, 35, um, 70, 30 range, dine-in to take out. But that's still an enormous difference from the 95-5 experience most full-service restaurants had pre-COVID. So now that one kitchen is really going to have to adapt to handle those two channels. And those two channels require some very different, um, very, very different things. Um, the One of the best stories I can tell is um, th- that tradition that my parents had with my sister and I of having to work in the restaurants, um, I've, we've passed down to my children. And my oldest daughter, Maddie, who's uh, 20 years old, is working in um, one of our favorite uh, full-service restaurants uh, over the summer. And um, Maddie is... Uh, we make fun of her. She's vertically challenged. She's four eleven and a half, and at um, one point she was put on the working the to go station, which for them at the time was just uh, set up as a few tables that weren't being used for the dine in business because they were only allowed fifty percent capacity. Um, but as the, the food came off of the expo window, um, and had to be put into a bag, the shelf at the expo line was not really meant for bagging. It was meant for, you know, food to come off a high window and then, put together either on a tray or with a a number of runners. So we had this four eleven and a half person trying to reach up to a five foot six or sometimes five foot nine uh, shelf, grab the orders and put them in a bag that she couldn't actually see into the bag. So she spent her entire shift on her tippy toes. Luckily, she was a dancer all her life, so she's used to that. But that's something, you know, incredibly 
you know, simple that you don't really think of that. Wait a second. If if 40 percent of my business or 30 percent of my business is going to be actually packed in a bag, I really should lower that expo shelf so that a five foot or even a five foot six tall person can actually see the things they're placing in the bag. Now, that's just one, you know, very specific example and it involves my daughter. So I tell the story a lot. Um, I'm a proud papa. Um, But that's, I I think, things that will need, one of the things that will need to change. Also, I I think we're going to see a lot more, the the use of a lot more um, automated cooking equipment, whether that be um, chain broilers or clamshell griddles or um, fryers that are, um, you know, timed and have automatic uh, basket lifts and things that can take the the guesswork out of the the cook's hands and really become automated and systematized so that um, the, the executive chef is really doing a lot of the thinking and is setting up these systems and is digging deep into those systems down to the minute details. And then that's being programmed into the various pieces of, of equipment, like what you see in combi ovens and um, even speed ovens today. Um, and then all of this stuff, all of these different pieces of equipment are interconnected through technology. And I think we're at the very, very beginning stages of seeing this interconnected, web-enabled kitchen. Um, Right now, each manufacturer has the ability to connect one piece of their equipment to another piece of their equipment. I think the next thing, and the thing that I'm really excited to see um, is an innovation where someone takes the approach of a, a more integrated, open platform to integrating all uh, manufacturers' equipment by, you know, through, you know, sharing apps and things like that. So that, again, the what that does is it allows for really, really skilled, high-level people to make a lot of the decisions and then push those decisions down at the cook line level, at the expo, you know, expediter station level, and then them those systems being executed by a need for less skilled labor. And hopefully that will allow the industry to not be locked into some of the labor shortages and labor issues that we had pre-COVID. Great. 
Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you.